0: Good evening. Welcome to Stewart Observatory, and we welcome those of you watching this podcast on iTunes U on the World Wide Web. Uh, before we uh, introduce tonight's speaker, I'd like to tell you that uh, our next lecture will be two weeks from tonight, and if you didn't get a chance to get one of the flyers, they are on the back. Uh, table, we've got some flyers for you to let you know about the rest of our lectures. Especially it will culminate on April 22nd where we will celebrate the 90th anniversary of the dedication of Stewart Observatory. And we've got a lot of fun stuff planned for you. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's going to be some things we've never done before. Or you things you've never seen before. And last check, our director, our new director of Stewart Observatory will be here. Uh, Buell Januzzi, and the Dean of the College of Science just told me on Friday he will also attend. That's uh, Professor Joaquin Ruiz, our Dean. So that will be a fun time. I hope you can all make it on April the 22nd. If there are students here for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignment. I'll do it at that table down there at the conclusion of question and answer period. Finally, it's kind of a iffy night out there. So I'm not sure whether we're gonna open the telescope tonight. I will, though, um, let you know by the time the lecture is over whether it's open. It may be one of those nights when the moon is really the only thing we can look at. All right, tonight we are very, very happy and proud to have Regents Professor Dr. W. David Arnett giving tonight's lecture. And let me say a few things about our speaker first. Uh, He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Kentucky And that was on a basketball scholarship, right?
1: (laughs) Too short.
0: Too short. (laughs) University of Kentucky, bachelor's degree in physics. Then he received his PhD from Yale, and that was in physics. For many years, he was a professor at the University of Chicago. But he came here, it would have been the late 80s. Late 80s, we stole him away from Chicago. This is one of the few times that we steal someone from another university instead of vice versa. And he's been here ever since. Regents professor is like the highest recommendation, highest honor you can get here at the university as far as a professorship. It's designated by the Board of Regents. Only a certain small fraction of the faculty can have that designation. And it's given for research excellence. But the big reason we want to celebrate tonight is that Professor Arnett won for the year 2012, the Henry Norris Russell Lectureship of the American Astronomical Society. Now, the American Astronomical Society, if you're not familiar, is the professional society of astronomers here in America, but you don't have to be an American to belong, right? There are many astronomers from all over the world that belong to the American Astronomical Society. It was founded in 1899, and starting right after World War II, they instituted the Henry Norris Russell Lectureship, named in honor, if you've taken an astronomy class, you've probably heard of the HR diagram. That stands for Hertzsprung and Russell. It's named after Henry Norris Russell, who was a longtime Princeton professor of astronomy and astrophysics. Well, according to the AAS website, they give out this award for a lifetime of eminence in the field of astronomy and astrophysics. And uh, appropriately enough, the very first lecturer in 1946 was Henry Norris Russell himself. <laughs> yes. And many famous astronomers have gotten this honor. But it is the highest honor that an astronomer can receive from the American Astronomical Society. We have only had one other professor here at Stuart Observatory win the Henry Norris Russell Lectureship. That was Professor Bart Bach. He won that lectureship in 1982, which was one year before he passed away. Professor Bach was the fourth director of Stuart Observatory. He was our director from 1966 until 1970. And I just wanted to read before I introduce, oh by the way, Professor Arnett has also won the 2009 Hans A. Beta Prize of the American Physical Society. And being a Cornell man myself, I'm glad to hear that, because I knew Hans Uh, Bethe. Even when he was retired, he used to talk to us lowly undergraduates at Cornell. And he is a member of the National Academy of Sciences. But I wanted to read to you the citation from the American Astronomical Society for this award. Professor Arnett has been a leader in developing our understanding of core collapse processes and the fusion of new elements in massive stars. He has also done pioneering work on thermonuclear burning in white dwarf stars and on the origin of type 1a supernovae which are at the center of contemporary observational cosmology. I also want to remind you before I turn it over to Professor Arnett that since this is a festive occasion at the conclusion of tonight's lecture I've arranged for refreshments in the main lobby. We'll have some light refreshments and Punch. And uh, feel free, uh, after the lecture, to join Professor Arnett in the lobby. You'll have a chance to chat with him, ask him questions, and have uh, a few refreshments. So uh, tonight's lecture, Thinking and Computing, Professor Arnett.
1: Can you hear me? Good. Well, Tom, thanks very much for the introduction. Uh, About the only point that uh, I need to mention on this slide is that my strategy tonight is to try to explain very simply what my research pattern has been and what the award was about with regard to what we found out. And there's quite a range in the audience tonight, including my grandchildren. And my goal is at least to explain it to them. And hopefully those of you who are more mature and more geeky can ask me more details, nasty details later. Uh, The original version of this talk was in front of a room of about 800 Ph.D. astronomers. So I've been through the fire on that one. Uh, Hopefully I I can answer your questions, too. I'm a strange sort of astronomer. I have uh, no astronomy degrees. My degrees are in physics. I don't look through telescopes except for fun. I use computers and thinking. That is, put, I guess the best way of saying it is I do a kind of computer game in which I design a digital universe, write down some laws, that is mathematical equations, put it in the computer, let it make pictures, and see if those pictures look like what we see. Now, there's a bit more to it than that, but I think that gives you a gist of the sort of thing that we're trying to do. And, of course, that can only be done if you have powerful computers. And I was just mentioning with Tom that uh, at Los Alamos, during the war, a computer was human, young, and female. It's only later that we got these electronic things, Uh, much to our aesthetic detriment, perhaps. Okay, to begin with, this is evidently part of what I got the award for because I wrote a book, and I thought it would be good to explain the terms in the book. Because I find when I'm trying to learn something new, it's very important to get the words right. And uh, let's see if we can do that. So I'll spend the first part of the lecture talking as clearly as I can about the underlying concepts and the words. And then in the latter part, I'll go into warp drive and start showing you some of the things, some of the simulations that we have done. Okay, supernova and nucleosynthesis. Well, supernova you can dissect. Super is like Superman. Okay. Uh, Nova is a little harder. It's Latin for new star. And the reason nova was used by astronomers is because there were these stars which would appear. Now, actually, they were just too dim to have been seen before, but then they exploded. Now, the ones that were first seen, the ordinary nova, are are a star which explodes and ejects a little bit of the outside. But supernova are more dramatic. They blow the whole thing apart. And nucleosynthesis. Okay, this takes a little more. Synthesis, I'm sure you get. It's just making. But nucleo, we'll talk a lot about atoms, and nuclei, because it's a key to what what goes further. It's an investigation of the history of matter. What is matter? Well, most matter we can't, in fact, see. It's dark matter. But the stuff we can see, this stuff, the stuff we're made of, is mostly electrons, protons, and neutrons. Now, I could describe it in a much more complicated way using quarks, And much more theory, but for tonight, let's just think of building blocks with neutrons, protons, and electrons. And finally, the Big Bang to the present. That's an interval of time. The universe was observed in its formation 13 and a half billion years ago. I'll show you a picture of it. And over that time, matter went through a lot of evolution. It started out as primarily hydrogen and helium, and then it developed into the things that people and planets can be made of. I think most of you have probably seen these Old Christiansen had a brilliant idea in the 1940s. The idea was to make building blocks of plastic so they could be manufactured cheaply, but all the same or with only minor differences. And because they hook together, you can take a standard and build a very complicated thing, although the individual blocks are simple. Okay, this is a theme for the talk. And we, instead of Legos, which were invented in Denmark, we'll talk about atoms and nuclei being like Legos. And another uh, Denmark product, Niels Bohr, was at the... He was one of the key people, and in fact, his institute in Copenhagen, which you see on the right here and on the left here. uh, Depends on which way I'm facing the screen. It's on the same side. It's just me that's confused. This was the place where at first atomic theory was hashed out and then nuclear theory was begun. Okay, if we're going to start a narrative, then we ought to have a cast of characters. Here's the cast of characters. We have photons. That's when they're acting like particles. But when they act like waves, they're light. So it's the same thing coming out of the laser and out of the light bulbs. Electrons. Okay, those are the next lightest things. They do have some mass but they're about 2,000 times lighter than protons and neutrons. And then finally, there's another weird one, which was only discovered in the middle of the 20th century. And it's not intuitively obvious, but these are in some ways like light and in some ways different. But they're very, very light particles, so they move very close to the speed of light. And a point that will come up later in the talk again. Only two of these things are charged and they're charged the opposite way, electrons and protons. And with charge, opposites attract so that these things, if they collect, you have a bunch of protons and you collect a bunch of electrons, then you have a net neutral system so that sort of cancels itself out. And I will come back to that point a little bit later. OK, let's start building. The simplest thing we can do is imagine a nucleus with some positive charge and electrons with a negative charge. And the number of protons equal the number of electrons, so the net charge is zero. Now, this thing is not quite to scale. In fact, Rutherford exposed atoms to positively charged alpha particles. and He found that most of the time, they would just happily go through the electron cloud and not do very much. That's like this. Or maybe they'd get a little bit deflected like that but occasionally some would go in and hit the proverbial brick wall, except this is actually elastic, so maybe it's a tungsten steel wall, and bounce almost directly back. Well, the nucleus is very small, but it's very heavy. And at the time, I think it was Rutherford who coined this phrase, it's as though the nucleus was a fly in a cathedral or you could think about it as the end of your finger in the middle of Arizona Stadium. So the electron cloud is very, very big. Now, we can start building if we take two atoms, and if they're the right atoms, then they will share electrons, giving an attraction And we built a molecule. We can build a lot of stuff. After the Gem and Mineral show, you may appreciate this one. This is about 150 atoms of sodium chloride. Sodium is the small one, chlorine is the big one. And here it's set up a crystal lattice. If you take big, big numbers of these things, they still reflect. The basic geometry of this form. So, when you look at a crystal, you're looking at its atomic shape as illustrated by the crystal, which sort of blows my mind. A crystal, and you're looking at atoms, but you're looking at a lot of atoms. We can go further. Here, we're using molecules which attract each other to build a complex structure, a very complex structure. And this is a great story, but what about stars? Okay, since I'm talking about stars, the first thing that you need to know is that stars shine because they burn fuel in the center And it's not a chemical reaction, it's a thermonuclear reaction. So they release a lot of energy. So the sun can sit there and burn as hot as it does in the Tucson summer for another five billion years. That's because each reaction releases a lot of energy. Hans Bethe here won the Nobel Prize because he figured out how this works. You burn hydrogen into helium. But hydrogen is basically two protons. So to make helium, hydrogen, helium, you have to switch a couple of those protons into neutrons. And what Hans found was This reaction, actually a more complex reaction, but this is sort of symbolic of the the underlying principle, which allows you to convert a proton and electron into a neutron. So now our Lego has moved from hydrogen up to helium. And we could build more complicated things, and I won't do justice to that part of the story, although... uh, A number of my heroes, and even I, later on, uh, contributed to that because I want to go to the point where we make very complicated things. But before I leave this, two very interesting nuclei, that is the dominant isotopes of two very interesting elements, carbon and oxygen, are just a little bit more complicated than the helium. I did this with malice aforethought. This is the most abundant nucleus in the universe. This is the second. This is the third, and that's the fourth. So the abundances have something to do with the nuclear structure. Okay, before I go further, I have to provide another bit of information. If you have a building block then it's got to have some stability, some strength. Something has to hold it together. In nature, there are four ways that you can hold things together. Two of them you know about. Two of them you, you, you may have read about, but you probably haven't directly experienced unless you've worked in a nuclear lab. Okay, the strongest of all, is the nuclear force, it's what keeps those neutrons and protons in the nucleus. But it has a very short range. That's the reason we don't feel it in everyday life. It only works if you got those things close together. If they're not close together, nothing. Electromagnetism, that's long, and I mentioned, long range, and I mentioned it was shielded. It's only about a percent as strong as the strong nuclear force. But that's still pretty big in this game. And this one uh, is shielded. uh, In Tucson in the summer, we get wonderful examples of this. It's called lightning. You get a cloud that is turbulent and develops uh, charge separation. So you have parts of it are positive and parts of it are negative. And because of the strength of this force, It pulls electrons out of the negative towards the positive, and that's a lightning stroke. There's a weak nuclear force, which we'll be talking about a bit more, and it involves neutrinos, and we've already mentioned it. That's involved in flipping protons to neutrons and neutrons back to protons. And then finally, there's gravity. Now, the weak nuclear force is a lot weaker than the strong nuclear force. 10 to the minus 20. That is 0.00, and you go out for 20 some odd O's before you get to a digit. So that's really tiny. But that's much stronger than gravity. However, gravity is obviously very important. Otherwise, we couldn't be stable right now. We'd go floating off towards the ceiling. Because the Earth's rotating and we just fly off into space. So, there's something about gravity, even though it's very weak, that it keeps things down. Why? It's because it's completely unshielded. We're being attracted by China and Australia and the Pacific Ocean and all of that stuff. And the force only falls off, as Newton told us, with the square of the distance. But nothing else stops it. We don't have a gravity shield, despite what you might see in grade B science fiction movies. Now, if you heat up matter, atoms and molecules, they're bouncing around and they lose the electrons. If they get bouncing around too much, the forces that held them together no longer work. And then we get the most common form in matter that we can see in the universe, and that's a plasma. You see it in a campfire. You see it in the northern lights. You see it in the sun. You can see it in this picture. Here we've got some rock, that's a solid. Here we've got the ocean, that's a liquid. You can see the line of the atmosphere. Here's the aurora. Just for kicks, this is the southern sky. And that's a plasma. And then we see this other stuff. And most of that's plasma, too. In particular, here is the central disk of the Milky Way galaxy. Here is the large Magellanic cloud, which had one of the closest supernovae certainly the closest superdove in this last century. Here's a small Magellanic cloud. Magellan sailors, notice these, they're not visible in the northern hemisphere. It's only when you go to the south that you can see these. In general, if we look further and further away, not at other stars, we start seeing galaxies, which are collections. And basically, when we look at a galaxy picture like this, what we're seeing is the formation of new, very bright stars. That's where most of the light comes from. And it's a dynamic process. But with the pictures, since we have our own very short human lifetimes, we can't see how dynamic this is. This takes millions of years to spiral around. But you look at the shape, it's easy to see that that's probably spiraling around. And if you look in detail at the velocities which you can get from the spectral lines of these things, they are moving. But it gets better. Suppose you point to a spot where there is nothing in the sky, and you take a very, very deep image. You don't find nothing. You find more galaxies, and they're further and further away. And in fact, the very dimmest of these are at the beginning of the universe. If our eyes could look in the millimeter wavelength, we would see the Big Bang. The Big Bang is not just a theory. The Big Bang is an observational fact. Right in there if you were to look with millimeter eyes, millimeter wavelength sensitive eyes, not just tiny little eyes, (laughs) you'd see the Big Bang. Now, as far as we can see, and that doesn't, I don't mean that in in the usual slang sense, I mean as far away as we can see, The abundances of the stuff that we see are pretty much like what we see in the solar system, not on Earth. On Earth, we don't have much helium. The only helium we've got on Earth is from radioactive decay of uranium and thorium. That's not much at all. We have hydrogen. We're hydrocarbon beasts, so it's a good thing we do have hydrogen. But we've got a lot less than in the sun. So if you include the sun in the mix, Its voting rights are very heavy because it's so big. It dominates the pattern. So what is the pattern? The most abundant element, that is the most abundant atoms, have a charge of one. That's hydrogen. After that, this is helium. And for the nerds in the audience, I can mention this is a logarithmic scale, so there's a really big difference here. Here, lithium, beryllium, and boron. Good for the, bi- the bipolar people. CNO here. Oh, that's us. I mean, we're, we're bags of water, and we've got skins of CNO and a few other things, but that's, that's getting a lot of the, the weight of it. When you step on the scale, this, this and this add a lot to it. On the other hand, the planet Earth is made of something different. Uh, neon is not very important, but sodium, magnesium, aluminum, and silicon, that's rock, that's magma, sialic rock, cymatic rock. And then if we go on further down, we get sulfur, okay, we know that from lava flows, uh, chlorine, argon, Neon and argon lights. Humanity would be in a bad place without those. Potassium. Potassium is great for uh, playing in chemistry lab because it can give you all sorts of little explosions. Uh, Calcium, good for the bones and the teeth, as our moms told us. And then there's this dip that goes up to iron. And then it goes on down, and after this, it falls on down even further. And these are very rare things. Not that they're not important, because out in here, over by the door there, or maybe by the chart, uh, you find silver, gold, uranium, thorium, all sorts of metals which have important consequences. However, we're just going to concentrate on these guys. And two groups discovered (laughs) back in the late 50s uh, the first glimmerings of how these things came to be and why that abundance pattern is the way it is. The first group, Margaret and Jeffrey Burbage, Willie Fowler and Fred Hoyle, here is a train presented to Willie on his 60th birthday. Uh, my wife Betty saw the train in London. Uh, Don Clayton organized contributions from the other visitors and we bought it for him. It's two scale and it operates. Willie took it back to Pasadena and had it in his backyard for years. This is the other group. My thesis advisor, Al Cameron. There's Al, Jim Turin, Chico Saruta, and there I am. Al decided that we needed good thesis topics, so he asked Jim to figure out how the Iron Peak was made, he asked Chico figure out how neutron stars were made, and he asked me to figure out how supernovas explode. Well, I still haven't got it quite right. I've got about three-quarters of it done. Jim and Al and I did a paper in trying to figure out this business of the Iron Peak, but funny thing, we ran it on the computer and then we got this result and the result wasn't what we expected. Now, we could have taken the point of view that we had made a mistake, And we did that for a while, but we couldn't find the mistake. So then we decided to, okay, take it seriously. And what it was doing, it was making the nucleus nickel-56, which has equal numbers of neutrons and protons, 28 of each, rather than iron-56, which is the abundant isotope in the iron peak, which has 26 protons but 30 neutrons. So somehow there are two extra neutrons there. Now this wasn't entirely uh, bad because we did get something that was pretty spectacular at the time. We got this pattern of silicon, sulfur, argon, and calcium, which was in high abundance and which in fact later we found in the supernova remnant Cas So, this was sort of a mind-boggling experience. That is, fiddling away on a computer doing these arcane kind of calculations, and you get something, it doesn't quite make sense, and then, boom, nature does it too. I mean, this was back in the 60s. And, you know, in the 60s, one thought about being in tune with the universe for other reasons, mostly chemical. Uh, this is nuclear. So we felt pretty good about that. Now there's an implication that we didn't pick up on immediately. If you make this nickel 56, what I've done here is imagine that you've got a flat table. You put down each of the different nuclei so that if you increase the number of neutrons, you go over that way, increase the number of protons, it goes up this way. This is just a little part of a great chart, and most of these things are highly unstable. The gray ones are stable, and notice this one's not gray. So after about six days, half of this decays to cobalt-56, and about two months after that it decays to iron-56. Aha. Now we can understand, if we make this stuff, why we end up with lots of iron-56. But there's this decay in there. Well, that's part of the story that I'm going to leave for a moment and take a divergence. And we will come back to that. I went to Lake Erie College from Yale as graduate student over the summer uh, to pick up my fiance. And she uh, had still had exams, so she parked me in the Lake Erie library. Lake Erie at that time was an all-female school. I was in my 20s. There's nothing that sort of gets a male ego going as being in this library and hearing the stage whisper,
0: there's a boy in there.
1: (laughs) So the official answer for why I was there was to write a radiation hydro code. What does that mean? That means a computer code which will follow the motion of radiation and the motion of matter, so you can imitate explosions, so I did now, I was following a couple of guys, Colgate and White, and they they had this paper, which was very sophisticated, except in one part, and then it was awfully awkward. They made this approximation that was just god-awful. And I commented, with a slight modification of their mathematical methods, I could include energy transport by radiation. Okay, well, at this time, Colgate and White had very good codes for dealing with radiation hydrodynamics, but they were secret. They'd been used in the bomb development. And they were not allowed to publish these, so when they had this great idea about the astrophysics of supernovae, they had to cut that out. It wouldn't get past the sensor. I didn't know that. So I just wrote one. I didn't know it wasn't supposed to. Oops. One too many. And what I did with it was to ask the question at the end of a star's life, when it burns up its fuel, what does it leave? Does it leave a neutron star or a black hole? We knew that supernova exploded. We saw that. But they left behind a residue in the center in about four out of five cases. We now know the numbers. At the time, we we just knew roughly. Some of the explosions blow the whole thing apart. They're called type 1A supernovae. All the others have a core collapse. And they make either a neutron star or a black hole. And when they make a neutron star, they have to throw off the excess matter, otherwise they'd end up as a black hole. So that's sort of the name of the game. Can we figure out where this happens? turns out the result is that if you have a really big object, it makes a black hole. If you have a small object, it can make an explosion. Now, we've been working on this since this was my thesis, and the paper got published in 67. We still don't know the answer. We sort of know the answer but when it comes down to the crunch, we haven't got it right. And it's because here we were calculating it like it was a bunch of spherical things falling in. And that approximation worked well for making bombs. Doesn't work so well for supernovae because they get all squishy and squiggly and aspherical. So that means that it's much harder to do a computer calculation. And the computers have only now gotten fast enough for us to begin to attack this problem in the full three dimensions. And it looks like the general scheme is about right, but hopefully we can make it quantitative. Now, a little bit after this, I had met a guy at Caltech, Bodan Paczynski, who was a postdoc at Boulder from the Warsaw uh, Observatory. And in 1973, uh, there was an International ast- Astronomical Symposium in Warsaw, to which I went because Bodan was there and I wanted to see him again, and it was a great meeting. But when I'd been at Caltech, Kip Thorne and I had edited a book by the Russian physicist Zeldovich and Novikov. And since we put a lot of work into translating, well, let me tell you a little. The publisher hired a Russian translator. He translated elegant, scientific Russian into god-awful English. Kip and I had to go through and figure out what they must have meant, and then write it that way. So this was a lot of work. So I was very interested in in meeting him, because it was a brilliant book, and I learned a lot doing this. However, there was a problem. The problem of the cloud. The cloud of short, stout guys in very bad suits. One of them gave a talk, and then I knew he was political. So Zelovich had all these, you couldn't get to him, there were all these guys around. So Paczynski, with his usual brilliance, invited me to a mushroom gathering party at the Warsaw Observatory. And he invited Zeldovich to the same party, separately. It wasn't very politically interesting for the Russians to be out there with a bunch of Poles, that was in the middle of uh, solidarity, so the Poles didn't like the Russians much, and the Russians didn't feel too comfortable with the Poles at that point. So the cloud disappeared. And I got to talk to Zelovich about this. And I said at one point, since a lot of the book had to do with supernova explosions, I said, you know that these explosions are a lot like atomic bombs. And Zel- Zeldovich got this big grin on his face. He looked back with a glint in his eye. Yes, I know. And he did know. <laughs> this was the bomb A a model of the bomb that was dropped in Hiroshima. This is the one on Nagasaki. This is the one that Klaus Fuchs sent the plans to this guy's minions. This is at the Soviet Los Alamos showing their first bomb. You notice they even have the same shape and they're even more alike inside. But it worked. Joe did that because he was sure the American bomb worked, and he wasn't so sure about his Soviet physicists, many of whom were Jewish. Now, I don't know how all that worked out, but I think it's interesting because later, and it came out of the lab that this guy was one of the heads of, there was this design. You notice this is smaller. It's more aerodynamic and it gives you quite twice as big a bang for your buck. And it's a little bit like the radiation hydrodynamics code. If you don't know the answer, you just have to solve the problem and it may turn out your solutions better than the one that you're trying to steal. That doesn't mean that security is not important, it just means it's very hard. Okay, I mentioned That there's one type of supernovae, which is basically a ball of nickel 56. The whole star explodes. And as it explodes, it expands at a very fast rate. It does the same thing that your air conditioners, our air conditioners do in the summer. It cools. So you have this big bunch of gas, which is cold, except if it's radioactive. And nickel 56 is radioactive. So it gets reheated, but now it has an enormous volume. Because it has such a big volume, almost all of the energy comes out as light, so it's very bright. Because there's a relationship between how much nickel you make and how fast it explodes, these things tend to be the same. So if we observe them, we find there's this pattern which Mark Phillips was the first to discover that as the brightest ones tend to be broader, take more time, the dimmer ones tend to be narrower. But if you stretch it, underlying all of that is just almost a single curve. Well, I had worked out a solution to the light curve long before there was this good data. And I published this. And a lot of people said, oh, well, that doesn't have anything to do with superdiving because the fat one is dimmer, except I use funny coordinates. And to make, put these on the same scale, you have to multiply each of these by the amount of nickel that was made. If you make more nickel, it's brighter. If you do that, and in particular, you take into account the fact that if you've got more nickel, it's hotter, it's more opaque. It takes longer for the light to diffuse out. Bingo. You've got this. Now, you say, well, what does that have to do with using computers? Well, I think this is one of the cases where we have the end product of using the computers. There were a lot of numerical models that went into understanding how these curves went and noticing how regular they were. And that gave me the courage to actually try to do it analytically, and it worked. I worked this out in Aspen, in a condo, in the afternoons after hiking in the morning. That was a good combination. Doing all this grotty algebra was painful, but if I had a hike in the morning, I could get through it. Now, the wonderful thing happened in 1987. A supernova went off in the large Magellanic Cloud, which I pointed to you before, and we got to test it. You know, theory without observation and experiment is a little bit like kissing your sister. Or your brother is the case if you're a female astronomer. Oh, but if you can test it and you can be wrong and right, then that gets good. Okay, this one, this is a picture of supernova 1987A. And we didn't know a thing about those rings. However, we predicted the neutrinos that came and were detected. And we predicted the light curve. The people were looking for the neutrinos because of the calculations that had been done before with neutrinos coming out of core collapse. And they detected them. And this time scale is zeroed at the point that the neutrinos were released. So the center of the star collapses, the neutrinos come out. Now, forming the neutron star makes an explosion but it takes a while for the explosion to get to the surface of the star. We knew how big the star was because it was observed before it exploded. So we have basically one variable that we can adjust and that is the energy. How much energy, kinetic energy is in the exploding stuff. But that's not free. We see the Doppler shifts of the lines in the expansion, so we could measure the velocity. And if we put put that stuff together, what we get is this. Well, Arthur Jones, amateur astronomer in New Zealand, uh, looked at the sky. He was able to say there was no supernova there at this time brighter than that. And McNaught detected a supernova at that brightness. And here's the data points, and they go on out. But notice, this is only a third of a day, so this is very early. So this part worked. Also, the neutrinos worked because we predicted the the energy of the neutrinos and we were correct with a factor of two, although we'd done it 20 years earlier. So that's not too bad, especially considering how little we really knew about the weak interaction at that point. Certainly considering how little I knew about the weak interaction. Now recently this issue has come up, last year in fact. The opera detector said that muon neutrinos coming down from CERN to Gran Sasso were coming faster than the speed of light. However, if the neutrinos were going faster than the speed of light, they would have gotten here. Uh, They would have gotten here at earlier and earlier times. But they didn't. This is when they arrived. Now, only slight differences would be picked up because this took about 25,000 years for the light to get here from the, the Large Magellanic Cloud. So I could put on my astronomer's hat and say the physicists were just wrong. Well, it turns out that they found out that they were just wrong. So in fact, as far as we can tell, neutrinos go very close to the speed of light or put another way, the neutrino masses are very, very small. Okay, now I'm going to switch and start talking a little bit about what we're doing now, or have been doing over the last several years, and show some of the promise of what you can do with computers. Uh, First, you know, this is the point I made at the beginning, it's a little bit like computer games. The second thing is one of the things that we found that was unprecedented is it looks like that before these stars die, they do not go gently into that dark night. They start erupting before they go. And we don't, we don't know the answer to this yet. I'll show you what little we do know. Okay, this is a cut through a star. That's an oxygen-burning shell, a carbon-burning shell. This is way down in the center of the star. The surface of the star is way up there. This is going to become the neutron star or the black hole. And you can see there's a lot of action, but it doesn't look like it's exploding. It's just sort of happily... You know, it's, it's like waves at the ocean, right? You go back a month, you still see waves at the ocean. Okay, we can do it in three dimensions. Now this is a much more challenging calculation. This is that same oxygen burning shell. I'm plotting it in a different variable. These are the ashes of the burning. And you notice there's a lot of rippling going on there. Well, it's the same thing that happens at the ocean. If I had been smart, I would have put in an NSF grant asking for A couple of years at the beach so I could study supernova explosions. But I wasn't. Or maybe I was. They would have laughed at me. Now, those motions that you saw there, they don't seem very regular. But if you average over them, they are very regular. The same reason that Nate Silver could predict the election results, we can predict the general, although not the specific behavior, of these events. That is, there's a lot of rippling, but it's sort of going one way and then the other, so it cancels out in the long run. In fact, there's a very close connection to meteorology. In the 1960s, Edward Lorenz, made a very simple mathematical model after he had done a number of uh, numerical studies that he couldn't understand. And he found, in fact, that with simple flow, certain kinds of behavior can become chaotic so that you can't predict the future very well. It'll be going around in a nice steady orbit and then suddenly it'll go zipping over do something very different. It'll do that for a while, and then it'll hop back. Okay. In this particular system, there are just really two states. It can either be uh, going around this way or going around this way. In reality, there are a lot more states, and we can have chaotic behavior. And I'm sure, judging from the average age of this audience, you've noticed this in your children. But there are deep underlying things that are beginning to become clear as we do the the calculations. And in this particular case, what I'm showing you is an eruption about to happen. This was as far as we could take the calculation. At this point, the fact that we were using a limited box was beginning, we were getting reflections of waves off the box. So at this point, we couldn't trust it anymore. But this was entirely unprecedented. Everyone had thought that these objects would be nice, spherical shells. They'd happily go into core collapse. And then that's where all the action was. Well, it looks like long before that happens, things get very complicated. I mentioned Nathan Smith earlier. He has been observing objects which are likely to become supernovae and also supernovae after they've exploded. And there's evidence for matter being thrown off before the explosion happens. It gets thrown off earlier and it's way out there. And then the supernova shock comes through and lights it up. So you get a blip in the luminosity. So nature is doing much more than we thought nature was doing. So, and I will end at this point. It is, it's certainly been a fascinating study. I'm looking forward to figuring out what really happens in these supernova, finally. And I'd like to thank you all for listening.
0: Thank you very much, Dave. We do have time for questions. Do we have any questions for Professor Arnett? Uh, very interesting talk. Thank you.
1: Um, I recently read of a supernova that happened uh, that was actually preceded by, I guess, two false starts. Yes. Where it blew up and the star Nathan remained. Smith is the guy, his group. Okay. Uh, actually, John, is it John in the audience? I saw him around earlier today. Um, yeah. How, uh, could, do you understand, the, or partially understand how that could happen? Partially. <laughs> the object was what was, had, had been uh, observed before it exploded to behave like a luminous blue variable. And the most famous of those is Eta Carinae in our own galaxy, which is an enormous star, about 100 solar masses. And back in the 1700s, it went bloop, and then a little bit later, it went bloop a little bit again, and we don't know what's going to happen next. This one was doing that, and then they were watching, and the velocities increased a lot. And then later, indeed, it became a supernova. So apparently it was a massive star, and it was doing this sort of burning I was talking about, and then it got to the point of collapsing, and it exploded. Now, that isn't a really satisfactory answer, but it's the best I can do at this point.
0: Other questions? No? (laughs) Here we got a couple. Yes, sir. Uh,
1: it seems to me that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but are all your basic assumptions about what's going on out there in the cosmos, is that gravity is doing everything? No, it's the four forces, all four of them. The nuclear forces determine what the nuclear reactions are going to be, and that's what's driving the movies that I saw. That's nuclear burning. Um, In one of the most exotic kinds of explosion that causes a gamma ray burst, a GRB, the magnetic fields are certainly part of the story. So all four of those interactions are happening. If I could just ask you where the magnetic fields are, is there electricity? It's a plasma. And plasmas always have both electricity and magnetism. Remember, magnetism is just electric, uh, an electric field which is moving. And these things are moving. So you always have both. Yes. What, what can you say about the future of our star, the sun? What, is there any? Uh, about five billion years more. Is that, a conf- is that a confident statement, or is it un- really unpredictable? Is it possible that the sun could explode at a much different time frame? I will bet you that in 100 years, it's not exploded. And I'll bet you $100. Oh, yes. I think it's a pretty confident statement, but nothing in this game is absolutely confident. That's why it's wonderful. We learn new stuff. Lately, there's been some mention that perhaps the Type 1As are not really all equivalent, and that what, we're, what we what they were imagining in terms of uh, uh, it being, you know, an absolutely fixed distance measure, that it might actually not be true. And that's been from observational information. And what could you just? Speak okay, to there, that? there are two very good questions here. One is that. Are the type 1A's all the same? No, there are certain small, rare, dim subclass which seem to be different in ways that we publish papers on. We think we, it's, it's a helium explosion instead of a carbon oxygen explosion, for the details. Um, but most of them, is the story that I said, and the only thing that's changing is that in some of the explosions, you burn a little bit of stuff to nickel, in other explosions, you burn more of it to nickel, and that's sufficient to give the curves we saw. Now, the other part of your question, that's gonna change the accelerating universe. No way. The accelerating universe is based on observation of a variety of local supernovae and that's calibrated. So any correct theory has to agree with those observations. And by the same token, the inferences about the expansion, unless you know, something really weird and wonderful comes up, which I haven't heard of. So, my feeling is that that's on pretty solid ground. We'll now, take... you, you come in next year and tell me I'm wrong, and you'll probably be right. But...
0: We'll take one last question. Uh, a different kind of question. Do you ever think about how you think about these problems and how would All you describe? How would you describe your thinking about these problems?
1: Daydreaming. Daydreaming and lots of mathematics. The daydreaming for imagination, the mathematics to make sure it's right.
0: All right. um, Okay, sure.
1: The Schwarzschild equation. When the man was talking about when you saw the a part of a star or a nova break apart, when you measure that mass and the part that broke apart, could you come up to that conclusion where it was going to become a supernova, a a, a collapsing star because of its uh, velocity exceeded density? Next year. (laughs) We're we're just moving into doing the calculations in three dimensions. And there we're really getting a whole different level of realism. And before we always had to fudge about assuming that it's spherically symmetric or cylindrical, you know, some sort of stuff that we had no physical justification for. It's just the only thing we could calculate. But now we're calculating the right problem. So I think that's the goal.
0: All right, I was able to rouse our telescope operators and tell about 15 minutes ago and they've opened up the telescope because it's cleared up enough that you can see Jupiter and the moon very easily. So the telescope is open for your public viewing. I would like to remind you that two weeks from tonight, um, Dr. Ann Sprague from our sister institution, the Lunar Planetary Lab, will be here. It was five years ago that the messenger mission went to Mercury and it's been five years and we're going to learn about what they've learned about Mercury because of the messenger mission. Uh, we have some light refreshment out in the main lobby and feel free to talk to Dr. Arnett there and let's uh, congratulate him one more time.